Uh, on Thursday of this week, uh, I was sitting at my desk. I'm paying bills online as I do every month, and I logged on to sallymay.com as I do every month. And this time, um, I almost started to tear. So I had this wave of emotion sort of flood me. And it's not the kind of crying you do when you see the bills are so high and you, you feel like crying, nor because I have some kind of weird love affair with my school loans. Um, I started getting emotional because for the first time in years, uh, Shainu and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? So we're, we're almost there. By God's grace, we don't have um, dumb debt. Um, actually, I have, a, I have a degree in history and theology, which means I'm never going to make money, so maybe it is dumb. And, and Shino and I have six degrees between the two of us and a two-bedroom apartment to show for it, so maybe it is a little dumb. But, but, you know, not the dumb kind of debt of exotic trips to Tahiti or matching Bentleys or because I shop at Versace, none of that, right? Um, as you can tell... These are Bata sandals from India. Um, so you can tell, that's not why we're in debt. It's just school loans. But we've been intense about them, really vicious about them. We've been sort of determined and steely-eyed. And Dave Ramsey would be really proud of us because each week we get after this thing really hard. So every month I log on to sallymay.com. I blast Eye of the Tiger as loud as I can. And I, I pay that thing down. I knock it down as, as hard as I can. In fact, I, I printed out our payment history for you. So there it is, right? Um, that's five years of month after month payment. Every line on there is another payment we've made, another month that we've been chipping away at this thing. So I don't know what you see when you see this, but, but when I look at it, this is a noose. That's what it is. It, it's, it's a prison. So for me, and I'm not saying all debt is bad, I'm just saying that for me, uh, these sheets are a reminder that, that I've been bound and captive by something, right? That's why we say debt-free, because in our mind, we get the idea that there's a relationship between debt and being bound to something, enslaved by something, captive to something. Each of those months, each of those payments are a reminder that money that I'm supposed to own these sheets are a reminder that something in turn owned me, right? I've been captive to it. And maybe you can relate. Uh, I'm guessing you can. If you're like the average American, you know debt and perhaps too well, right? Our nation, some say, has $556 billion in outstanding student loans, let alone $933 billion of credit card debt on top. They say the average home has some $16,000 at least in debt. All right, so you, I, we get debt. And we even get the connection that there is between debt and bondage, between debt and captivity, between debt and slavery. And what the scriptures say is if you can get that connection then you're primed and ready to understand a hugely important biblical truth. And that is that beyond the world of banks and loans and credit and interest, you stand in impossible debt. That you then also stand in impossible slavery. The scriptures say you have a spiritual debt and a spiritual slavery that outweighs anything else you've ever seen. 
that our sin, our evil, our wickedness, our wrongdoing is tantamount and equal before God to debt. And maybe if you remember the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, you, you see the connection. What did Jesus say? When you pray, pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And, and it clicks. And you remember that in the scriptures, one of the metaphors that the scriptures use to convey to you what your sin is like is the metaphor of debt. That if you can get debt and the bondage and slavery that ensues, you get your spiritual condition, that you are indebted and enslaved by your sin. So if you go that far with me, that we are in debt and we are enslaved spiritually before God, then you'll go one step further with me, which is to say, then what we need is for someone to pay our debt and someone to set us free. Biblically, you would say what we need is we need a ransom and we need a redeemer. So in this series, for the last seven weeks and for the coming five weeks, we've been in a series that we're calling Christ Crucified. Each week we're looking at the cross of Jesus and considering a different thing that God accomplished through the cross of Jesus. We said it's sort of like a crown jewel that we're holding up and we're turning it on its sides. And each week we're beginning to see another side of its brilliance and beauty and it's taking our breath and it's causing us to wonder in all that God accomplished. This week we consider that Christ was crucified as our ransom and our redeemer. Or to put it simply, that on the cross, Jesus paid our debt and set us free. Jesus paid our debt and set us free. I'm going to pray for our time together and then we'll unpack some of what that means for us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in uh, helplessness, needing your divine help even now for the task of hearing and communicating your word. So be with us as we preach and hear your word preached. Give to thy word success. Overcome our sin, our barriers and obstacles, and even our enemy, and ensure that your word and your gospel would be planted deep in our hearts and produce good fruit. Do not let it spring up only to be dried away by the sun. Do not let it be choked out by the concerns of this world. Do not, be stolen, do not let it be stolen up by our enemy, but rather let it be planted deep in our hearts and bear good fruit that will be for your glory and our joy. Cause us to have renewed or new affection for Christ, our ransom and redeemer. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, ransom and redeemer. Those are our two big words that we're going to unpack today. If you're going to get ransom and redeemer, I'm going to have to help you to understand some of the background, the context, the backstory to these two words so that you begin to understand what the Bible is trying to communicate when it says to us that Christ is like a ransom or Christ is like a redeemer. You, you've got to understand the background to these two words or Better way to say it might even be word pictures, because that's what they are. They communicate certain ideas or images, or they sort of tell a story. So what's the background to these words, ransom and redeemer? I don't know what images, what ideas, what stories are conjured up in your mind when you hear these words, but what I want to give you is what the first hearers of these words in the scriptures 
would have thought when they heard those words? What images, what stories would have come to mind when they heard those words so that if you can understand that, now you've got a closer shot at understanding what the Bible is trying to communicate to you when it uses those words. Okay? If you can get what the first hearers thought when they heard Ransom and Redeemer, now you get what the Bible is trying for you to get when you hear those words. All right, so let's start in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, right? The, the second portion of our Bible. What, what is conjured up when you hear the words Ransom, Redeemer? In the New Testament, you're in what's called the Greco-Roman world. That's just a fancy way of saying that when the New Testament was written, the prevalent worldview, idea, language of the day was Greco-Roman. Greek in thought, Roman in power. So when the New Testament writers wrote, right, the last 27 books of your Bible, even though Jesus spoke, for example, in Aramaic, they wrote everything that they wrote in Greek. Because that was the prevalent language of the day. That was the thought of the day. Sort of like if you had an earth-shattering, world-encompassing message to get out today, you'd likely write it in English to get the most bang for your buck, to have it spread as widely as it could. So they thought and wrote in the Greco-Roman world. So what does Ransom Redeemer mean there? In that context, in that background, in that worldview, it's actually words that come from the practice of warfare. So here's what would happen. You'd have these two nations that go to war with each other, two enemies, two powers, two armies, and eventually one would prevail over the other and destroy the other, except you don't have the sophistications we do as to what do you do with your defeated foe. You don't have, you know, international law, Geneva Convention. All you have now are these prisoners of war, and what you did was you dragged these prisoners of war back to your country, and they became your slaves. That's what they were. You took all these defeated foes, these prisoners of war, you brought them back, and now they became your slaves. They lived, they worked, they died on this enemy soil. That was all that you could expect. Except there were certain situations where you could go and buy back your friend, your relative, your brother, your father from the hand of the enemy. You could, you could pay a certain sum and buy them back. And of course, it came at great price, at great cost. And so you would save all that you had to buy back this prisoner of war. Now, that act of buying someone back was called redemption. That's what it meant. That, that's what it meant to redeem someone, was to buy someone back. And the person who was willing to pay that price became your redeemer. And the sum that he paid to buy you back was called the ransom. Right? So this process of buying you back is redemption. That's what it means to redeem. The one who does it is willing to pay the price, becomes the redeemer, and the price that he pays becomes the ransom. All right, so that's what these words mean in the second half of your Bible, in the Greco-Roman world, in the world of the New Testament. But these words have even deeper roots because your scriptures are not just the second half, not just Greek, but your scriptures have 39 books in the beginning, the Old Testament, which have roots now in Jewish worldview and the Old Testament. So what do these words mean in these deeper roots? Let me give you some examples so that you get the feel. 
One example is, in the Old Testament, if a person fell on some bad luck, some terrible misfortune, and found themselves destitute and poor, what they could do is they could sell themselves in servitude or slavery. You need to know that when the scriptures speak of slavery, don't think 1800s African Americans in America. That's not slavery in the scriptures. Rather, it's more likened to indentured servitude. So what you could do as a, as a gift of grace to you was instead of being destitute and wiped out, you could sell yourself to someone who had resources and indenture yourself as a servant, as a slave to them. And that meant that you worked and worked and worked and worked for years and years and years and years hoping to somehow pay back your debt. And, and you were confined to that with no exceptions but one. The only way you could get out is if there was a provision made in the law, if you had a family member, a relative, someone in your kin who could ransom you, who could redeem you. The phrase became known as the kinsman redeemer. If you read the book of Ruth, you, you see how Boaz plays that role. What you could do is if I was a relative to a certain person, I could ransom them. I could redeem them. I would save all that I could and I would buy them back. At great cost to myself, I'd redeem. Whenever redemption happens, it happens at great cost. Whether you're talking about buying back a prisoner of war or a, a slave who sold themselves into slavery, redemption always needs a ransom and a redeemer. To, to be redeemed means to be redeemed at great cost. In the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest illustration of redemption, of being set free from slavery, is the second book of the Bible, the story of Exodus. In Exodus, you have the greatest example of redemption of, of a people that are being set free. So in the book of Exodus, you have the people of God known as Israel. They're in bondage, in captivity for 450 years to the people of the Egyptians. And the scriptures say the Lord redeemed them. He set them free. How? Now be sure there is no payment made by God, Yahweh the Lord, to the Egyptians. There's no transaction. That's important. God doesn't negotiate with the Pharaoh. He doesn't strike a deal. He doesn't sit at the table with him. No, he crushes him. That's important because you also need to know that in the same way, Jesus didn't barter a deal with Satan, our enemy. So it's not like Jesus sat at the table with Satan to exchange a deal to redeem us. No, he took his enemy and he crushed him. That's what we heard last week. He crushed the head of the serpent. And yet, it's not still that redemption happens without cost. Even the redemption of Israel happens at cost. The scriptures are sure and clear to tell you that God with great force, expending great energy, using many resources, redeemed his people. And the scriptures bend over backwards to tell you that so that you get, even when we're talking about Israel, it happens at cost. Redemption always happens at cost. I mean, for you to get that, you have to consider how easy this rescue, redemption, would have been for God. Because of how infinitely powerful God is and how infinitely small we are. What I mean is, the scriptures tell us that God is so great over the nations that there's no comparison in terms of power. 
So to get that across to us, Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 40, gives us some metaphors to explain what the nations are like in comparison to God. He says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Right? How significant is a drop in the bucket? You, you put a drop of water in the bucket and it's gone. You don't find it again because it makes no difference. It's a drop in the bucket. Or, or then he says the nations are like dust on the scales. And the image is sort of like when you go to the butcher and he's got to weigh the meat, he doesn't even bother to dust off that fine dust because it makes no difference. It doesn't change the weight of the thing. It's so insignificant and small. That's what the nations are likened to compared to God, that, that even Egypt in all its power is like the dust on the scale that you don't even bother to take the time to wipe off. And so God could have redeemed with effortless ease. And yet the scriptures make a big deal that you know with a mighty outstretched arm, with great use of his resources, with the expansion of his power, God redeems. Because whenever redemption happens... It happens at great cost. All right, so you summarize all of that together. Whether you're in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament or in the ancient Old Testament world of Israel, whenever redemption happens, it is the setting free of an enslaved, indebted person or people at great cost. That redemption happens when you have a ransom paid by a redeemer to redeem. All right, so now where do you and I fit into all of that? When you open your Bibles, you find that you have been created by God. He's your maker. You are owned by Him, made for Him and for His purposes. You can deny that. You can suppress that. You can ignore that. You can restrain that. You can run from that. It doesn't change that. You are as much God's as the iPad is Steve Jobs. Right? It was created for him, for his purposes, for his gain. So were you made for God. And when you sin, you rebel against your maker. And the scriptures say, let me give you a metaphor so you get what that's like. Your sin is debt before God. The scriptures say, here's a metaphor to explain to you what you are in. You are in massive, unpayable unsurmountable, impossible debt. So that all your sin, all the wicked that you do, and all the good that you left undone is debt before God. Just consider that. Everything you do and every good you fail to do just grows your debt. Everything you do. So every wicked word you've said Every act of violence you've participated in, every time you've sinned sexually, every time you said a word you weren't supposed to say, all of that continues to grow. And then not just the things you've done, but even the thoughts of your head, so that every vile thought, every wicked imagination, every incorrect motive just continues to grow. If those were like rocks that you piled onto one another, how high would the mountain of your sin be? And then you add to that not just what you've done, but the good that you've left undone. So every time you failed to love when you were called to love, 
And every time you failed to serve when it was in your power to serve. Every time you failed to be generous when you could have been generous. Every missed opportunity to encourage your wife. Every missed opportunity to serve your husband. Every missed opportunity to grow and lead your children. Every failed moment continues to grow that debt. So I'd ask you, you look up and how high would that mountain of debt be? Or you look down... And you tell me, how low would that hole that you're in be? The reality is that you find yourself spiritually in impossible, insurmountable, never, ever, ever could pay back debt. And you don't have the means nor the currency to pay him back. I think the worst part of this whole thing is that in our arrogance and in our pride, we actually think that we could pay God back. It's not just that we're in debt. It's that we are so proud to think that we could actually pay him back. That, that's what all our strivings in religion are. If you've been here any time at all, you know all the time we hammer the difference between religion and the gospel. Between man-made efforts to get to God and gospel, God effort to get to us. So in the world of religion, all the prayers that you pray and all the good deeds that you do and everything you've got on your spiritual resume ready to show God is what? Your attempt to pay God back. The sick, weird thing is we actually think we're going to put God in our pocket. We actually think we're going to turn the tables on God so that instead of us owing God, God now owes us. He owes me forgiveness. He owes me eternal life. He owes me heaven because I went to church on Easter and Good Friday or because I fed the poor. One pastor was counseling this particularly broken man who had made an extreme mess of his life, committed horrific sin. And in order to press this point to him of the impossible situation that he was in, this is what he said. I want you to hear it and hear our condition as well. He said to him, I want you to sincerely wrestle with the hopeless situation you are in. What can you possibly do to unmolest your daughters? How do you expect to unrape your ex-wives? How can you possibly unbeat your sons? Do you really think a few tears, a few apologies, and a few canned goods to the local food bank can pay back God and all the people for all the sin you have done and all the good you have failed to do? How do you pay back for your sins? How do you undo what you've done? How do you, how do you propose to pay back God for your sin? Where would you start? What, what currency would you use? Even if you could go from here and never sin again, which you can't, all that would mean is that you don't accrue additional debt. It wouldn't do a thing to pay back what you've already accrued. You stand in impossible, insurmountable debt before God. And to make matters worse, not only can you not pay back God for the sin that you've done, you can't stop sinning. You can't stop but daily accruing more. Because you find yourselves not only indebted to sin, but enslaved by the very sin that put you in debt. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And you know that to be true. 
Like if you think back to the time you started sinning a particular sin, do you remember the war that was in your heart, that struggle as you tried to fight it? And, and what happened over time? Over time, it became easier and easier and easier to do till it was natural, till it was just a part of who you were. Why? Because your sin has enslaved you. It has made you its slave. And, and for those of you that are still proud enough to fight back and say, but I can master over my sin, right, with all the might you can muster, you can gain mastery over one. And when you do, you find that there's another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. So that what you cannot do is be free from sin because you are indebted and enslaved. And the sum result of all of this, like anyone who's in debt, is you will pay for your debts. That's what hell is. Hell is where God confines spiritual debtors to pay back their debt. Right? That's why we say things like, you'll pay for that. Or we'll say things like, he'll have hell to pay. That's right. Because the scriptures say that's what hell is. You get to spend eternity paying back your infinite sin against an infinite God, and you pay it back infinitely. And yet, and yet, in His undeserved, unmerited, unearned grace, grace, which should become for you one of your most favorite words in all the scriptures, in nothing but grace, God redeemed you. God paid the infinite cost to redeem you from your infinite sin. And my dear friends, I would plead with you, don't gloss over that. Don't rush through that. Don't be in a hurry to get past that. Because the reality is, you and I have nothing to offer God. Nothing to round Him out. Nothing to complete Him. Nothing He was lacking that He got filled when we came along. He was completely self-sufficient. Nothing He needed from us. We've been in church for so long that we assume that God should be gracious. We presume that God should let us go. You try going to the mortgage company and assuming that your debt should be let go. Or to the student loans and just presuming that they should forgive you. No. What you should expect is that everything you have will be squeezed out till you pay back what you own till the last cent. And that's not unjust. That's just fair. And yet, instead of fair, God gives grace. He had no obligation, and yet, for nothing and no reason but His grace, He redeems. He gives you Jesus Christ to ransom and redeem you. You were in debt and enslaved, and what you needed was a ransom, a price to be paid, and a redeemer, one who was willing to pay that price and enter Christ crucified. So that here is what Jesus says. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 
1 Peter 1 verse 18, Know that you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot or blemish. We were in debt and we were enslaved and God gave to us a ransom and a redeemer. God gave Jesus Christ who was willing to pay down our debts with the ransom of his blood. Not with gold or silver or perishable things, but the infinite cost of Jesus' blood. The infinite cost of the wonderful life of the Son of God paid in your place to set you free. So that you and I owed a debt we could not pay and Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay and Jesus pays a debt he does not owe. So that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid your debts and set you free. So that we truly stand forgiven and freed. So that he not only does this, this is the unthinkable part, he not only forgives us so that our debt is brought to zero, he then credits us with his righteousness so that when God looks at us, our bank account is overflowing. So that when God looks at us, he sees you not in the debt of your sin, but for all who have placed their faith in Christ, he sees you in the righteous account of his son, Jesus Christ, so that you could approach the Father as boldly as Jesus does. That your account is as full as Jesus' is to all who would repent and believe. So if you're here and you're a Christian, hear me. Do not gloss over. Do not run past this. Do not run through this. Don't let your heart grow icy and cold where it should be warm and soft. Don't let it grow hard where it should be broken before God. God owed you nothing but to collect every debt you owed, and yet he gives for you Jesus Christ to pay down your debts, to set you free, and to give you his righteousness. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, hear me. I know you're in church, but it's often been said, coming to church makes you no more a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car, right? You could be here and be here and be here and trust in all of this and miss Jesus. So hear me. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't have a love for Christ, you don't have a faith in Christ, you're not broken by your sin, you hear me. You should actually leave here different. You could consider and confess your debt. You could pray like Jesus taught us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts. And you could find yourself to be bankrupt as you are. You could stop trusting in yourself and trying to repay back God and trying to do religion and do good things to get even with God. You could see your soul for what it is, bankrupt. And then you could turn your faith and your eyes to Jesus Christ and see him on the cross. And as he bleeds out, you could see that blood as your ransom being paid, being poured out and paid for you. And you can trust not in yourself, but in him. And you could have your account credited with his righteousness. This is the glorious news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has paid our debt and set us free. Amen. Let's pray.
here where all of history is going as the Apostle John peels back the curtain of heaven and gives us a glimpse to our eternal destiny who are in Christ. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, Jesus.